Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Bank UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Bank UK family and stay tuned. Hi, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show. Lovely to have you along. I really do appreciate all my listeners. First topic, it's another in the series of chats with cancer scientists from the CRUK City of London Major Centre. Uh, we discuss the Baobabe charity. Um, so the progress made by Baobabe Fund has been quite incredible. She has raised um, over £11 million so far, and people can still donate um, at baobabe.org. Dr. Rupal Mystery from Cancer Research, U- Cancer Research UK um, talks about the Baobay charity and then the topic, some of the research that's been funded by that charity uh, with Dr. Oleg Blyas. The research is using AI to help detect cancer cases early. Then feeling a little bit burnt out, possibly like this. Feeling that they do have too many distractions to be able to switch off. Uh, walking through their sort of lunch breaks, uh, making sure that their inboxes are cleared, checking emails out of hours and being unable to relax. Henry Nelson Case did, and uh, he was working as a lawyer, but now he's cut down on his work hours and started to do something very different. Find out how and what it is he's doing differently. And please do join me for a great show. Thank you. So the first guests today are Dr. Rupal Mystery from Cancer Research UK and she's talking about the Bow Babe charity and then Dr. Oleg Blyas goes on to talk about his project which has been funded by the monies from the Bow Babe charity and that's using AI to try and get to really good grips with some early recognition of cancer um, using blood serum, uh, lots of samples of blood serum. So. Um, very interesting so please do stay tuned first of all i asked rupal just to talk about the bow babe charity and remind us all uh, what it is and how it came about yes of course um so dame deborah james um announced uh, the establishing of the bow babe fund for cancer research uk on her social channels in may 2022 so last year and this was about after five years being diagnosed with bowel cancer um, and since then she has been raising awareness for bowel cancer through things like her blog her weekly column for the sun newspaper and deborah wanted to give back and so she set up the bowel babe fund to give people more time with the people they love um, and the fund was to support projects uh, that she was passionate about. So cutting edge research into early detection of cancer, personalized medicine, and raising awareness for the signs and symptoms of bow babe. Um, so initially she wanted to start off with raising 250,000 pounds and she smashed this target in a single day. So that was an incredible achievement. It, re- it really was got into the, the imagination and the, and the minds of, of the public, didn't it? You know, the great British public really responded to this, this particular kind of charity drive. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, you know, sh- she's, she went into the media and it, all of her raising awareness um, really paid off. And um, a lot of people became more aware of bowel cancer and the sign and looking for signs and symptoms for it. Do, do you know how much it has raised today? Yes. Um, so the progress made by Bow Babe Fund has been quite incredible. She has raised um, over £11 million so far and people can still donate um, at baobabe.org. 
Okay, all right. So if people are listening to this and want to donate more money, then they absolutely can. All right. Just give us that total again. What did you say? So just over eleven million pounds has been raised so far. All right. Now um, that eleven million pounds, what's uh, what's happening to it? And uh, you know how how's it, how's it been distributed amongst the sort of scientific uh, community? Uh, yeah, so it's it's going through a variety of things, and um, one of them is working with Cancer Research UK to fund some amazing research that we're doing. Um, so we're supporting um, the, through the fund. We're supporting five projects, one of which is Dr. Oleg Bias's um, research. Um, uh, but as well as raising awareness, we're working with Bowel Cancer UK. We're raising awareness for um, for bowel cancer symptoms uh, and signs and symptoms. And um, as more and more money is being donated, um, we're looking to um, also fund more projects and partner with other organizations to help uh, raise profile for bowel cancer and fund more amazing research. Okay, all right. So uh, we'll have another plug for the Bow Babe at the end, but let's, let's move on to um, Oleg. Um, you are, you're, you're doing some research um, and it's kind of, maybe slightly different or perhaps it's just not in my world but the research you're doing is, is quite different to other research I've sort of heard about or know about uh, you're looking at proteins in blood over time to see if we can get some kind of early signs of cancer is that is that more or less it can you put explain what you're doing a little bit more maybe yeah that's correct uh, so there are two main components of my project the first one is generation of the unique data, which is something that basically never existed before. So that the data that would, as you said, represent those serial patterns of protein concentrations in blood over time from some number of patients who eventually developed cancers, in particular bowel cancer, and some number of healthy controls. And then once the data is produced, we're aiming to develop the AI tool that would discriminate those cancer patients from healthy controls as early as possible, thus actually allowing for the early detection and stratification. Okay, so where's all the, all the data coming from, the, the kind of blood samples? Because I, I gather there are an awful lot of them. Yes, uh, so we're really lucky in the UK to have a trial that is called UK CUTOX, which stands for United Kingdom Collaborative Trial of Ovarian Cancer Screening. It may sound a bit odd that I'm talking about the ovarian cancer, but uh, in my project, I'll be dealing with like bowel cancer. But what's amazing about this trial is that it involved, it was a prospective trial that involved women recruited being healthy. So right. at the start of the trial, there was there were 200,000 women in total, that's a massive number, recruited across the UK. Uh, this involved a number of GP centers. And then in one of the arms of this trial, which is called multimodal, uh, women's serum was collected and stored annually. So as a result, sadly, eventually those women, like every year, those women were developing different conditions. Just because it's 50,000 women, if you know the prevalence, you can get a rough idea how many yearly you would get cases. Okay. Cases. So, and, so, yeah. so over how long was the blood collected from this 50, these 50,000 women? How many so years? The recruitment started in 2001, and then the... Uh, Serum, if it was serum, yeah. uh, it was collected until 2011. Okay. And then women were still followed up first until 2013, and then there were some further follow-ups as well. 
So you've got serum samples from 50,000 women. Is it once a year for every for 10 years? More or less. I mean, okay. that's the best case scenario. In reality, there are some. Uh, okay. So, this, so, so more or less, yeah. This, I'm just trying to imagine that. That's an awful lot of little tubes, I'm thinking, full of blood serum. I mean, I haven't done, I can't do the calculation. Maybe you've got it in your head. I don't know. But there are thousands and thousands of samples. That's correct. All right. So you, you've got a room or probably several rooms full of all, all these samples. What what next, Oleg? What do you, what, what do, you do with them? So those old samples are stored in a biorepository. So that's like a separate uh, place, of course, where there, there are some specific conditions uh, for these, in order to make sure that those proteins, for example, won't degrade or anything like that. Uh, and yeah. then I will access the samples that I have chosen for this project that I thought would be particularly relevant for or cancers like bowel cancer. Uh, I will access those samples, so they will be delivered basically to my fridge uh, in the lab. Uh, and then from those samples, we are aiming to measure the proteins. Again, okay. I'm not a technician. I'm, I cannot do that myself, but my project involves a technician who would do some of the work. And then the rest, the majority of those proteins will be uh, calculated externally. So there would be an external partner who would do this work. So in the end, in a way, I would simply get an Excel sheet with yeah. lots and lots and lots of numbers in it. Right. So from, from all these samples of serum, how many proteins are you checking for? Uh, so in this project, it'd be roughly about 100. So okay. our project uses commercially available panel of 92 cancer-related proteins, just some general, generally known uh, proteins. And there would be some number of already known and well-established proteins that we will do in addition, just to see how complementary they are. Okay, so let's, let's see if I've got this right. You've, you've got essentially 50,000 people giving blood once a year for 10 years. So loads of many, many different samples. And in those samples, you're checking for 100 different proteins that can appear in blood. And you're looking to see if any start to be a little more common or a little less common just before uh, some of these people become ill. This is correct. Uh, just to add that from those 50,000, of course, I won't get all 50,000 and any generation of such proteins. It's super expensive. So what I will get would be the so-called case control study, which would involve if we talk about bowel cancer, for example, 100 bowel cancer cases, the 100 patients who developed, 100 women who developed bowel cancer, and 150 healthy controls. So those women who didn't. And for most of them, there would be five serial time points available. So like okay. time point zero, time point one, year before that, two years, three years, four years. So, so, you're, so you're looking at samples from what you said 100 patients that you know got cancer okay all right i get it that's correct all right so just thinking about it suddenly for it goes from 50,000 patients which is an awful lot of people down to a 100 that you know got sick with a certain sort of cancer in this case bowel cancer i'm almost thinking actually uh 
is that an AI problem? Because I, I'm thinking, okay, it might take me a bit of time, but with some graph paper, I might be able to figure out which proteins have a bit of a spike before someone gets ill. That's true. Uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to be true. facetious and say you're wasting <laughs> your time because, you know, I'm, I'm not in your world. But uh, explain a little bit more uh, what, how um, the intricacies of it work is, uh, and how the AI can, comes into it. Sure. The two main complexities with this data are, first of all, it's uh, longitudinal. So it measures those proteins over time. And whereas, yeah, and the second, it's multidimensional. So those are the two things to bear in mind. So basically, as you said, with one protein, looking at one patient, you can see if there is some elevation before cancer diagnosis or not. If you would look, if you would try to average that across 100 patients, that would already be a bit tricky. But then if you would want to combine the proteins, that's where it gets more or less impossible to do it without a computer, basically, because you cannot assess how complementary they are. Nor, of course, you cannot assess how to combine that into a tool that would give a risk. Because in the end, we always want to deal with something meaningful. We want to see the risk. And as a result, we could do further risk certification. So those okay. are the things that you simply cannot do just by eye, like visually inspecting. Although, of course, what you're saying is correct, like with a single one and with few patients, you can, you can get an idea of what's going on, but you cannot quantify that without a proper method. Okay. So how, how far into this uh, story, this research are you, Oleg? You know, have you have you what have you found out some initial results? Uh, so uh, at the moment we are still waiting for the samples. Oh, okay. Uh, all <laughs> the negotiations are in place. Everything's in place. We already started preliminary work using other data set that we have available on ovarian cancer just from the trial because it's also multidimensional and longitudinal. So we're trying to prepare as much as we could before we get the samples, and then. Actually, the samples should be arriving this uh, month to the page. Okay. And then hopefully in a couple of months time, we should get the Excel sheet. So I'm really excited about that. Certainly before the end of the year. Yeah, so it's, go it's shortly going to really take off. You're going to be very busy, but uh, it's <laughs> going to be very exciting. Yes. Okay. I've, I've got another question for you, which is kind of a bit, a bit more basic, I think. So the... All, all, all these um, patients, um, you know, the, the, the 50,000 uh, that you ended up with, they're all women. Now, um, is, is that, are you, are, we, are you concerned that might skew the data somehow? Because, you, know, you know, women are different to men. There's different, different hormones, I guess, different proteins coursing around their veins in their, in their blood. Um, is, that, is that a concern? That's a fair point, and it is a concern. Of course, there's nothing we could do about it. The original trial was for ovarian cancer, so these are all women. However, first of all, for most of the proteins we're thinking of, it is well known that they're expressed in the same way in men and women. And second, once we do the analysis, we identify the subset of proteins, we're able, we would be able to further somehow uh, assess how similarly they're expressed and basically take that into account. Yeah. But at, the, at this time, it's well known that like most of them, they are equally expressed. So it's, yeah. we, we really anticipate this should not be an issue. Okay. And 
you do have this fan, fantastic data set. So, it, you know, it's a shame to waste it. You know, it, it really should be used, I guess, is one answer to that as well. Um, yeah. I, I've, got, I've got another question as well, which might be a little bit unfair, uh, because again, I'm, I'm not a scientist, I'm, I'm an engineer, actually, I'm a civil engineer. So I do like to approach things logically. And I, I was thinking, you're, you're kind of, you're starting with the answer, and then you're looking backwards to see if you can uh, see what was moving towards that answer, rather than looking at the data and then getting the answer, if you see what I mean. So from a, um, from a scientific way of looking at things, is that, is that going the right way? That's a very fair question. So the most fair and unbiased way to perform a study like this would be to do it in a hypothesis-driven way. So it'd be fair to start with a well-set hypothesis, which we could then try to validate. Uh, the issue is, like you said, this is the most unique data set, which never existed before. And that's why what we are trying to do is we are trying to uh, exploit this data set in such a way that we would be able both to uh, suggest a hypothesis and to test. To do that, uh, there's a number of methods that are all within the so-called internal validation group. Right. So basically, the idea is that whenever we would be doing our study, we would split the data into the so-called training set and test set. And then uh, we would uh, develop any model just in the training data set without looking at the rest of the data and then blindly apply this model to the test set. So the problem that we are trying to avoid in such a way is the so-called pro problem of overfitting, where basically a model can simply memorize all the patients, and then it would be given super predictions, super good predictions on those patients, but it won't generalize. What we want to do is we want to actually identify the real trend, not just to give good, get good prediction, which will not be reliable. So therefore, this internal validation, that's a valid approach, where basically we would keep that another half separately, blindly, and won't look at the correct label. As you said, won't, well, make sure that there won't be any leakage of the true label from the test set. No, no. Oleg, I, I had a feeling that you would have a good answer to that question. <laughs> I, I kind of knew in my bones that you had a way to get to get around that. So, Can I just add that still, that's, that, that's the only way we could do that. Basically, there's no other option, but of course, to make sure that the model that we produce gives the right answer, we would still need the external validation, which uh, we'll seek for, for the funding to run that after we develop the model. So that's the natural pipeline anyway. Sure, sure. So well, actually that leads on to my next question in some ways. Once this work is done, the, the, the ultimate goal, I guess, has to be, is it, well, you can tell me, is it a simple blood test that can predict um, bowel cancer? That's the aim. And would it, is it likely to be, you know, of just needing a little prick of blood, so the sort of thing you could do at home, or would you have to go to the doctors, or is that too far ahead to kind of really know? Uh, that's a bit far ahead. It basically depends on what the proteins that we what, what what the proteins are that we would identify to perform the best. But in theory, it could be a simple blood test. Uh, I don't see why not. I mean, we're all aware of this story about Uh 
but yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't see why not because it's it only involves well. In the end, we hope it will it will only involve a few proteins whose concentration can be measured at home. So this can be a simple tool, right? And then uh, there would be some application like on the phone, which would just use those numbers. It would require updating because we're talking about longitudinal patterns. But with the updating, you'd see how your risk is changing over time and act on that. That's right. the yeah, excellent. Dream. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it does dream. sound very exciting. But then I suppose leading on from that, if if you can do this kind of work with uh, looking at the proteins in the blood for one sort of cancer, you know, why stop there? You know, could it be predictive for all types of different cancers in one, you know, really very simple blood test? Is that almost too good to be true? Or Actually, no. Uh, so I have just been to the International Cancer Surveillance Network meeting last week in Turin. Actually, even this week in Turin. Sorry, I, I already got lost in dates. Uh, <laughs> that, where that happens when you lot, have to travel to conferences, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm at another conference now, yes. Uh, so a lot of hype over the last couple of years probably war, uh, is around the MSAT systems, multi-cancer early detection systems, where that's exactly what people are trying to do. So in my particular project, I'm looking at three cancers, uh, bowel, lung, and pancreatic. And once those AI tools for the three cancers are developed, we will see how can they be combined into a single one, for example, for assessing just a single cancer. But in theory, of course, you should not restrict yourself to a single cancer. And I envisage in a few years' time, that's what should be happening. I presume the eventual solution should include multiple cancers. And right. as I said, that's what people are working on. Yeah, okay, excellent. And now, okay, this might be an impossible question, in, in which case I apologize, but I do end up asking impossible questions occasionally. Do you have any idea or any, any data on how far ahead the, these protein levels may change before cancer might be spotted by other means, you know, bef before a patient sees a lump or feels something a little bit different. How, what is the advance warning? How much advance warning is it likely to lead to? Uh, so that's actually exactly what we are trying to answer with the data. Okay. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that, it's really, it's really great uh, feature and property of this data set uh, that it's actually was directed towards the ovarian cancer. What it means is that ovarian cancer was the main outcome uh, and the rest was just followed up. So all, all those women who developed, for example, bowel cancer, it means they developed it by symptoms. And mm -hmm. then we can go backwards to see how far before the symptoms a biomarker elevates. And this would give us an indication of the so-called sojourn time so that the biggest well, the largest difference, how far in advance we can actually predict cancer. Okay. All right. So that, so that so will like, be one of the answers you end up with. Okay. Correct. Correct. Uh, Oleg, it, it feels like you're on, on the cusp of some very exciting work, dare I say even sort of exciting discoveries. Um, so maybe the thing to do is we should make a date for a, a few months' time. Uh, I can invite you back and uh, you can tell me all the great stuff you found out. That'd be amazing. 
Okay, I, 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 I would really enjoy that because just, just from your description, it, it sounds like this is potentially very exciting. And just your, your enthusiasm, I, I can tell you're very excited about it and you're really hoping to um, find something very exciting and very useful. So look, thank you so much to um, you, Oleg, for discussing that. And uh, thank you, Rupal, for just giving us an idea about where the, uh, the funding was come from, coming from and the Bow Babe charity. Perhaps just before we finish, um, we spoke about it earlier. If people are listening to this kind of thing, listening to this and thinking, yes, I would like to donate some money to the Bow Babe charity. Perhaps, RuPaul, you can tell us just one more time how people can uh, go about doing that. Uh, yes, of course. Um, so, yeah, as, uh, as I mentioned before, um, you can still donate um, to the fund and it will be going towards more amazing research and other raising awareness for bowel cancer. And you can do that through bowbabe.org. Excellent. All right. So, look, again, both of you, Rupal and Oleg, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Thank you. Are you feeling a bit burnt out maybe a bit got out with all the modern techniques of communications which just seem more and more intrusive uh, henry now nelson case uh, felt that way uh, a little bit uh, quite a lot actually and uh, if you're feeling the same way hang on and hear what he has to say about it i started my chat with him by asking if he if he was a victim of the always on culture Yes, uh, I feel full very much within that camp. Um, and like the 2000 adults that were commissioned um, by a poll by Extra Gun, which found that 65% of people below the age of 34 um, are part of this always on culture with too many distractions um, and not being able to switch off each day compared to interestingly, just 12% of baby boomers. Okay. All right. Well, you don't look too much like a victim, victim to me. You look like you can take care of yourself, Henry. It's it's a it's a filter on the camera. Um, no, but <laughs> there, there are a number of tips that I personally take um, into account each day to kind of focus on my own well-being and to make sure that I get time away from the camera. Um, uh, well, we, well I, I definitely want to get into the tips at some point, but I just want to... Um, get into your sort of story a little bit because you you recently gave up a full-time uh, lawyer job essentially due to burnout is that right yeah so that that's um so my background is i am a lawyer and i also make videos on social media about life as a lawyer uh well-being and just the corporate environment more generally and i was doing both at the same time working my full-time lawyer job uh which is quite demanding. And I was also sort of creating content uh, and doing sort of social media related stuff around that. Uh, and they kind of both became full-time jobs. Right. My job was sort of doing all my lawyering stuff, which obviously has its own demands and social media kind of grew to a platform that I never knew or expected it to. And trying to manage both of them at the same time was very overwhelming because I was doing social media stuff outside of my working hours. Sure on the weekends and then as a result I had to kind of give up other aspects of my life like I was probably not eating as well as I should be I wasn't exercising enough I wasn't even seeing that many people because I didn't have the time um so I decided to sort of reevaluate the way that I was working and I still practice as a lawyer just more on a consultancy basis 
So I kind of get that flexibility around um, how and when I work. All right. So what was it when you were practicing, practicing as a full-time lawyer that made you want to search uh, for something else? Because, you know, you were obviously looking for a way out. So was it so I've, I've looked at some, some of your, your videos, OK, and you complain about the sort of the micromanaging uh, from bosses. And, you know, is, is that is that a particular problem in, in the, the lawyer world? Yeah, I, I think um, so. A lot of my content is based around sort of experiences like I've had or my friends have had uh, who are also within the legal profession. And I don't think I was necessarily looking for a way out of the profession because it's a profession I really value. I'm really glad to be a part of. And I worked very hard to get sort of into it, but it was more just having this outlet to kind of showcase how I was feeling. Um, right. I didn't ever expect anyone to see it. It was just something for me. Um, and then people started seeing it and saying, oh, this is me. I do this. Uh, I have that. This happens to me. I feel seen. So then I started to realize, actually, there's a whole community of people that are going through similar experiences, but I can't see anything that's actually happening within these organizations to make some kind of positive sort of changes. And one of them may be having a micromanaging boss. The boss is always um, down your throat, checking up on you, calling you at all hours of the day to make sure like you are actually working, um, which, which is just one of many issues that a lot of us experience. Sure. And so so part of this is sort of brought about by the technology, which enables this always on culture, because, you know, a, a boss presumably wouldn't dream of calling you at nine o'clock at night, but wouldn't think twice about sending you an email or a text. Yeah, it, it, exactly that. And whilst technology has been amazing in terms of it's given us the opportunities to effectively work from anywhere speak with people across the globe, um, have access to emails on the go. It also has its sort of downturns in terms of it's it's hard to switch off. It means I could email you, uh, Mike, at midnight, and then I could chase you up at 8 a.m. in the morning. Like, Mike, mate, where, where's the response to that email? This is urgent. And just having access to to these people, it's, yeah. it's giving us all of these distractions. And it, it, it but is- then also, Henry, it's, if, if you're doing that, it's kind of easier for me to ignore you. Because if, if we're talking face to face, it's a bit harder for me to ignore you. But if you send me an email, you know, I, I can just ignore you. Yeah, but I, I feel like there, can't, there comes a point where you you have to respond at some point. Um, and also, we're, we're on our phones 24-7. We're checking our phones. You see the emails. Uh, you feel the need to sort of respond. It, it It's kind of hard to get away from that. And that that's yeah. not sustainable. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I do suffer from this as well. I mean, I work in a slightly different environment. So I work for myself, which might even make it worse in some yeah. instances. I, 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 I don't know. But I'm not I'm not a millennial. Do you, do you think millennials kind of have it worse? Yeah, I, I think so. The the research commissioned by sort of Extra Gun reveals that Gen Z millennials are living in at a faster pace than any other generation in in history. With two thirds of millennials feeling that they do have too many distractions to be able to switch off, uh, mm-hmm. walking through their sort of lunch breaks, uh, making sure that their inboxes are cleared, checking emails out of hours, and being unable to relax. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, the, the the lesson I could get from that, if you know, if my business grew a little bit and I wanted to employ someone, the lesson might be right. Well, employ a millennial because they do loads of work. Just don't have one as a friend or or a partner um, because they're probably not very good friends or partners. But great if you employ them. 
Yeah, I, I mean, um, that that's probably what a lot of my mates would probably say about me and the previous girlfriends have probably said he works too much, um, which which is fine. We're all, we're all guilty of doing it, checking our phones first thing in the morning, uh, reading emails, but living this fast-paced life, but it's really important and something I'm personally recognizing that I need to be doing more of is taking these moments to step back, to slow down, because when I'm doing that, I'm like prioritizing myself and ultimately the output that I give in terms of the work that I do, the creativity levels that I'm going to have are going to be so much better than if I'm just rushing through task by task just to get them done. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you've done that very successfully because now you, you do a bit of lawyering and you do a bit of content creation. It all sounds quite good fun. Yeah, and for the most part, I'm like very, very lucky to be in the position that I am, but probably similar to you, Mike, working for yourself kind of makes you kind of be a lot more switched on. You're checking things all the time. You don't really have those boundaries because everything just blurs into to, to your life. You need to be responding to those emails. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really trying to make sure that I do sort of slow down and focus because I don't want to be another one of those statistics that gets to age 34 and I'm completely burnt out and I can't be or perform at my best. Yeah. No, I mean, certainly I, I do suffer from it. You know, I mean, My children tell me off occasionally. My wife tells me off frequently. Well, for lots of things, actually, but cer <laughs> certainly, for, you know, in my phone. But to some extent, Henry, have, have you sort of come from suffering from the problem to, to being part of, of the problem now? Because, you, you, you know, you, you, you create stuff that you want people to see. So you kind of live for the clicks. So you're, you're, you're fueling the problem at the minute, aren't you, Henry? I, I, I would quite heartily disagree with the point about living living for the clicks and the likes. Part of when I, I I'm just trying to poke you a little bit, but no, 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 you know no, that's, that, that's fine. Uh, instead of me poked, <laughs> <laughs> I I would say that the the reason I got into making this content wasn't ever to be like an influencer or somebody of status on social media. It was primarily to and still remains to share experiences and build this community around well-being within the workplace and slowing down and taking steps to focus on ourselves and to ultimately get these organizations to listen to the people who are necessarily at the junior end of the scale that actually what is happening at the top and what the people at the top think are happening in terms of well-being within the workplace actually if they hear from juniors isn't happening there is this sort of always on culture there is this needing to respond and i think it really takes a a step of leading by example from executive teams from team leaders to say put these boundaries in we don't expect you to be responding to our emails at midnight we don't expect this we are paid the salary because we do all of this stuff at some point you may progress up to here but right now these are the expectations we expect of you and it's about having those open and meaningful discussions Right. So do, do you think that is happening? Because I, I have heard, actually, that in some companies, they, they do this, you know, don't we don't expect you to respond to emails at, outside of work hours, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, there is some positive. So do you, do you think this is generally um, things are moving in the right direction um, or do you think there's still a big case? You know, for you, you're, you're obviously chipping away, um, telling this story. You know, part of the reason why you left a full-time lawyering uh, job as a lawyer, etc. Do you think progress has been made? 
or are things getting worse? I think these conversations are the start or they are pushing the conversation in the right direction. I think there's still a lot to, of work to do, but it is really encouraging to see organizations taking proactive positive steps to ensure that employee well-being is more than just lip service. There are actual practical steps being taken within organizations, organizations encouraging employees to sort of practice relaxation techniques, to enjoy some time like away from their desks, to make sure that they're not sat at their desks um, eating. Because as humans, we find it really difficult to multitask. The brain is not programmed to multitask. So if I'm, I, I don't know, eating some like poached eggs and bagels for my lunch, uh, whilst trying to type an email, I can't physically, like, in any sort of good sense, draft a good coherent. Well, enough hands for one thing. Yeah, one with one hand. <laughs> but you you can't physically focus on these two tasks at once to any kind of good standard. So it's it's very much um, that behaviour should be encouraged within the organisations in terms of well being. And I think we are going in the right direction, but I think more still can be done. Good. All right. So what advice would you give to say a long, a young lawyer or well, any young person starting a job, all very excited about it, and then suddenly realising that actually, you know, their boss is taking the mickey and expecting them to do things in the, you know, in the evening, the night time. Because um, you're in a difficult situation there, aren't you? You know, first of all, this chap is your senior. Um mm. So that's quite difficult. Presumably, you you know you you want to get on, and you're you're interested in what you're doing. So you're in a bit of a pickle. What what kind of advice would you give to to someone in that situation? Absolutely, Mike, and it's a pickle I have been in myself. Well, um, yeah. So you're the perfect yeah, person to yeah, answer the question. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think there isn't anything wrong with wanting to do well in your career. I think. You, you've got a new job, you're just starting out, you're, you're on your graduate scheme, whatever it is you may be doing, and throwing yourself at that and enjoying it and taking from as much as it as you can. But equally, I don't think that should be to the detriment of your sort of personal well-being. You shouldn't be living this fast-paced life all the time. So, so steps to kind of ensure that this doesn't always happen is to have those open communications with your superior. Make sure you're putting those boundaries in and sort of having conversations where we set realistic goals. What do you actually expect from me? What's expected of you? What's this relationship? Because having these achievable goals can kind of reduce some stress levels because you get that sense of accomplishment and control. You know exactly what is expected. And similarly, taking moments for yourself during the workday, whether that's if you're in the office, going to grab a coffee with one of your coworkers, going for a little chat, going for a walk, making sure you are away from that desk, so when you come back, you feel energized, recharged, um, and ready to like tackle your day. And I think one of the key things is just having these conversations and seeking that support as and when you need it. Don't leave it till the last minute when actually you've said yes to all of these tasks that you can't physically do by that 5 p.m. Friday deadline, but you've not really said anything at the time because you wanted to impress. And I, and I think it does take a lot of courage and confidence to be able to say no to your superior, to be able to say, actually, I've got a lot on right now, mate. Can we maybe reprioritize this? But once you start doing that and get comfortable doing it, um, you will find that you will be so much more happier for the most part within your workplace 
and feel more confident and comfortable with your sort of workloads. Sure, that sounds like good advice. I know you're from the world of um, law, but have you noticed that this is an issue in, uh, in other industries? You know, maybe some other industries are worse. Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, mates in various industries outside of the legal profession, and there are a lot of common themes um, that we all experience. It may not be the same because of the profession that we're in, um, but the demands are still there. The sudden like leadership styles are still there, and it's something that's across the board. I would say in business generally. Okay. All right. So let's look to the future with uh, this always on. Well, maybe the always on idea will dull a little bit but the technology is not going anywhere you know if, if anything the technology is going to change and become more immediate um so uh, is there any hope for us there's always hope mike that's one of the things that keeps us going um but yeah you, you're, you're completely right that the technology is going to keep advancing we've got ai tools like chat gpt um, amongst other things coming in and it's all about how can we incorporate those into the workplace to enhance our productivity, but still being mindful of the, the pace of life that we're living at and being able to slow down and take these steps um, yeah. to make sure that I'm prioritizing uh, our well-being. All right. So final question, possibly the most, most important one, really. If someone is suffering from this and they're thinking, right, I need a resource, I, I need some advice, I need some help, um where can people turn to yeah so if, if people are suffering uh particularly within the workplace then uh i'm obviously i'm not a mental health um trained expert in any way but i would reach out to somebody who you feel comfortable with and if you need to reach out to um a professional then definitely do that speak to your employer um around sort of what they can do to help you to give you the support that you need and if you wanted to find out how extra gum who sort of commissioned the report can benefit your sort of existing daily rituals and routines. You can check them out at extragum.co.uk. All right, Henry, look, thank you very much indeed for chatting. I need to go now because I need to go and check my emails. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm going to have <laughs> a coffee. Have a nice day. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show. And they were Dr. RuPaul Mystery from Cancer Research UK, Dr. Oleg Blyas from Queen Mary University London. And they were talking about the Baobab charity and the research that Oleg is doing, uh, which is uh, in AI, used for cancer research specifically for seeing if they can find better, faster ways to uh, diagnose cancer. And then it was Henry Nelson Case uh, talking about the always on culture. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening. And please do stay healthy till next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like, and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week. Until next week.